Let's pray as we proceed with the message. Holy Spirit, we ask that you open your word to us today and that um, you speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear you, hearts to obey you. Show us more of who you are in the pages of your word today, that we may glorify you all the more. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to uh, open your Bibles or pull them up on your phone if you prefer. Um, you, we heard our scripture passage, but we're very much going to be looking at the entire chapter. And so if you'd like to follow along, you should have Bibles in your pew. All families have stories. Perhaps I should say, maybe that's a little presumptuous. My family has stories, and perhaps yours does too. And some of them might be happy ones that often get shared when family gets together, and others might stay more hidden. And they might be things that people would rather forget. These things may not even be spoken of, even if they are perhaps the reason for certain undercurrents within the family, or the reason for certain dynamics between individuals, or maybe if they are spoken of, they are in ways that serve little more purpose than gossip. Now again, if that sounds familiar, that might not be you, but if it resonates with you, if it hits a little too close to home, please be reassured that you are in the best of company. Because as we'll see today, Jesus has more than just a little gossip fodder in his family and family background. Our passage today is taken from the lectionary gospel passage. For this, the fourth Sunday of Advent, the week where we celebrate Christmas. Advent, of course, is the season where the church remembers Israel's waiting for the Messiah and our recognition of the Messiah being born as Jesus Christ, and to remind us of our waiting for him to return. And this entire first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew very much lays the foundation of who Matthew is trying to present Jesus to be. And he does it through this chapter. Part of the way he does it through this chapter is through highlighting his heritage and his origins presenting them, foreshadowing even greater truth that, he might, that gets revealed later in his gospel. And as we look at what he's doing in the chapter, we'll see he's actually telling us some important things that inform what Christmas means for us. The verses we heard today, 18 to 25, they are the beginning of a commonly shared Christmas story that many of us know. But to understand the full weight of what Matthew is trying to do, we have to go back to the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of his gospel. As we'll see, he's trying to tell the reader some important things about Jesus' birth through his family tree. Now, to do that, we have to look at the genealogy that he does. Now, understandably, this is not generally people's favorite part of the Bible. This is not usually where we gravitate to for devotions or Bible studies I don't know a lot of people that tell me of the latest genealogy they read in Scripture, but they do serve a purpose, and Matthew's is no different. Matthew's is probably especially the case, because right from the beginning, 
He states his purposes. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's unambiguous. Right away, he is trying to show that what he intends to do through his gospel is show that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. And he connects them to these two key characters in their history, each who have been given profound promises by God. First, he mentions David, the king in Israel's history who all other kings in their history are measured by. Recognized to be the greatest king in their history, to whom God promised to establish his throne forever. And then we have Abraham, to whom God promised that he would make him into a nation. And that through him, God would bless all the nations. And from these and other promises of Scripture, Israel is expecting a king over the nation, from the line of David, the Messiah. At the time of Jesus, much of the emphasis of the expectation is on political liberation because they are under the oppression of the Roman Empire and had been under foreign oppression for much of their history. And so the Messiah was very much expected to reestablish David's kingdom, the physical boundaries of his kingdom, and free Israel from the tyranny of its enemies. Matthew is stating Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. He is born the Messiah, promised to Israel. Even if it's not quite the way people were expecting As the narrative unfolds, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God, or as Matthew prefers to refer to it, the kingdom of heaven, which continues to advance through the church today, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we carry out God's kingdom work, we wait in hope of one day seeing Jesus bring it in its fullness when he returns. Matthew roots Jesus in these promises, but his emphasis is on the spiritual liberation rather than the the political. Now, to be sure, all earthly powers will be subject to Jesus' kingdom, which will last forever. But through the genealogy, Matthew lays the foundation of the revelation of the identity of this saving king for whom the nation of Israel waited. Before we get to the story of Mary and Joseph, the list of names that Matthew opens with is worth looking at. And we have a few characters who are prominent in Scripture. Of course, David and Abraham, like we said. And some who are not as prominent, some who may not even be mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures. But more than that, there is more than one name that calls to mind stories that families might prefer to forget. But to get the full weight of the story of his birth, we have to look at this list. Let's take a look at a few of the features of Jesus' family tree and look at some of the stories that are within it. First, we have Abraham, father of the nation of Israel, the first of the patriarchs. He's used as a prototype for faith. Even through the, through the New Testament, by people like John the Baptist, even Jesus, and later, Paul. And yet, because he received the promise of ancestors, 
when he and his wife Sarah were beyond childbearing years, they decided to help God fulfill this promise in a way that God did not tell them to, with an extramarital affair, with Sarah's servant Hagar. And when Hagar bore them a child, they sent Hagar and the child away. We have Jacob after Abraham, another patriarch who receives the blessing of his father through deception, even though it belonged to his older brother. We have Judah, and his brothers are mentioned. They are the patriarchs, the namesakes of the tribes of Israel. Judah, the namesake of Jesus' tribe. And yet he and his brothers sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Judah himself deceived his daughter-in-law at her expense, putting her life at risk for his own livelihood. If you go further down, we won't hit every name, but we'll hit some of the highlights. We have David, as we mentioned, the greatest king in Israel's history, to whom God promised to establish his throne forever. The promise we recognize fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he establishes the kingdom of God for all time. And yet, as scripture records, he abused his power to violate Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And then tried to cover it up by murdering her husband Uriah and taking Bathsheba to be his wife. And to top it off, he wasn't a very good father either. And it cost him and the nation of Israel dearly. After their first child dies, we have Solomon, who secedes David, recognized in Scripture to be the wisest of all rulers, who builds the temple where Israel worships for centuries, and who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and whose heart was turned away to their gods. His son, Rehoboam, secedes him and effectively splits the kingdom of Israel in two because of his own arrogance. And, then, and in the process, leads his people into sin and civil war. And there's a line of kings that follow. Some of them are righteous. Some of them are not and said to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But eventually, the royal line fails. All these kings eventually lead the people into judgment and exile, which Matthew is sure to mark in the genealogy, verses 11 and 12. Matthew also does something that is unusual for genealogies of his time. He includes women. There are five of them mentioned. And while the exact reasons are debated, it is very much intentional. There are several possibilities. He could very well be trying to assign them equity that was denied them, even in the stories that Scripture records. Maybe foreshadowing the new reality that Jesus brings with his reign. He could be trying to highlight their ethnicity as four of them are likely not Israelites, two of them for sure. Foreshadowing that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, yes, but this Messiah over all nations. But the one thing all the women he mentions have in common 
is that somehow or other, in their stories, they are marginalized and yet used by God in surprising ways. We'll look at them briefly. We have Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, who had to deceive Judah to provide for herself. It almost cost her her life, but eventually she brought him to a place of repentance. We have Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute who hid the spies of Israel as they entered the promised land. We have Ruth, a Moabite, who married Boaz and provided for her Israelite mother-in-law, who's held up in Scripture as an example of faithful love. And then Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, as we mentioned. While a victim of abuse of power, it is her son that secedes David. And finally, Mary, a peasant woman from the marginal region of Galilee. And yet her obedience places her in a very tough place. Luke tells us that she willingly accepts the assignment to be the mother of the Messiah, but does so in a way that she has to conceive out of wedlock. All of them are examples of God working in extraordinary and unexpected ways through unexpected people for his purposes. Jesus is the Messiah Israel has been waiting for, yes, but he is not just for the insiders. He is not just for the people who are considered to be of proper ethnic or religious pedigree. He is for the outsiders as well, the marginalized, many of whom are examples of faith. And eventually, many outside Israel respond to this Messiah and carry out the work of his kingdom because he is for everyone. The list I just gave you is the short version. It's the condensed version. And yet there's still no shortage of scandal in Jesus' family tree. Matthew is selective in his genealogy, as many are, and maybe including some of the names to prepare the reader for the very scandal of his birth. He is born into a scandalous situation. Last week we talked about how God showed his love by giving us his son to walk among us as one of us. And we know the story. We have nativity scenes that tell it. We have one on our front lawn. A lot of churches in the area have the same. We have one right here. It's played out in pageants around the world. There's a Charlie Brown special on it that you may have seen already that they play right after Thanksgiving. But when we look at the details of the story itself, it is not so neat and tidy. It's not so idyllic. Matthew says in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Let me paraphrase this. Joseph found out his fiancée was pregnant before they were married and the baby wasn't his. That's probably closer to how people saw the scenario. And we know the background. We are let in on it. We know it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But aside from Mary's relative Elizabeth and her husband, who Luke tells us, 
are also bearing a child. John the Baptist, miraculously, even though they are beyond childbearing years. Aside from them, who do you think believed her? That Joseph did not is telling. And in some circles, it would have been mandatory that he divorce her, lest he potentially condone the adultery that would have been presumed. And in doing so, would put her at risk of further ridicule and potential execution. So Joseph, in his righteousness, decides to do it privately, but God intervenes. And an angel tells Joseph in a dream where the baby came from and to take Mary as his wife, and he obeys. Why does Joseph need to be told by the angel not to be afraid? I imagine because the scandal wasn't going to go away. People talk, especially in a small town like Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph are from. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, yes, but that's because they had to register for the census. And then they return to Nazareth later, where he is raised. People already know what happened. This is a place where people know each other's business. When Jesus starts preaching, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? They know him. Do you think they know a thing or two about where he came from? Even if not entirely. Do you think they know this story? Some of you may already know how conversations like that go. Maybe some of you have been victims of those conversations. Or maybe participants. The whispers that are sure to remind people of the mistakes they've made or the presumed mistakes they've made. This is what Jesus is born into. This is what Jesus probably grew up with. And his line, while it is royal, is anything but pristine, as we've seen. With righteousness and scandal running side by side, and the circumstances of his birth are far from what one would expect for the king of kings. We sang about some of them. He's born to peasants out of wedlock in a place where animals are kept. And soon after, has to, his family has to flee for their lives to Egypt as refugees. Why does any of this matter? Because Jesus' line and Jesus' story reflects our humanity. This is God entering into our story Jesus' family is full of humans, just like us. His birth places him in a position where he can identify with the outsiders, with the marginalized, with the scandalized, with the people of our world who we might shake our heads at, or wag our fingers at, or whisper about behind their backs. And the life He lives, is near those on the margins. It's near those on the outside. And his welcome for them, his welcome for people like the lepers, the people called unclean, 
or the prostitutes that people referred to as sinners, or the tax collectors that people saw as traitors to their own nation. His welcome for these people is part of why people flocked to him. It's also a big reason for why people sought to take his life. He is born into scandal, and he dies in a scandalous way, executed as one of society's worst in front of people who would continue to shake their heads at him and mock him even as he was dying. This is how God showed his love for us. Jesus is born into scandal, yes, but he is born to save. Jesus comes from a line of sinners to be among sinners, to save sinners. And when we forget that, when we forget that Jesus is for sinners, we might find ourselves in one of two places. On the one hand, we might find ourselves overcome with guilt, thinking that God may, have, may not want anything to do with us. Why would God listen to my prayers? Why would God use someone like me? Why should someone like me be welcomed into a place like church? Now understand, when people find themselves in these places, they're usually not getting that message from Jesus. Unfortunately, they far too often get it from us in the church when we find ourselves in the other extreme, judgmentalism. The place where we continue to recognize other people's sins, maybe to help us forget about our own. But make no mistake, Jesus came to save sinners. Matthew tells us this, clear as day, in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. He is to be named Jesus because it means the Lord saves. His name is the message of his life, his death and resurrection. And the story as a whole is a scandal unto itself. That the one who owns everything would give it up to become nothing. To live among us as one of us. On the margins, alongside those on the margins. To die to atone for our sins and be raised from the dead on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life. Not because we deserve any of it. But because he loves us. Because he was born to save. But it doesn't end there. It continues. This is a continual reality that we get to live with. All this happens. The story of Christmas happens in conjunction with the obedience of Mary and Joseph. This story in Matthew's gospel, it highlights more Joseph's actions, but... Mary is, probably, is, Mary is shouldering the brunt of this. We talked a little bit about it already. It's no small deal. And in addition to what we've already mentioned, she has to give birth far away from home and family. Their, their obedience is not easy, but it's how God carries out his purposes. God still accomplishes his purposes through we who would follow him. He often works through the obedience of his people in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our sin, because Jesus is bigger than our sin. 
And so Jesus continues to invite us to be part of his purposes as we obey him and do things that may not make sense to this world. To love those that the world would shake their heads at. To forgive those that the world would say are indebted to us. To give away that which the world says we should cling to. It doesn't always make sense, but then neither does the love of God always make sense. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, on Christmas Day, it tells us of a Messiah born into scandalous circumstances to a family of scandalous stories to save us. These circumstances testify all the more that he is for everyone and invites all to come to him and be part of his purposes. We need only to receive him, which is as simple as telling him, Lord, I receive you into my life. I want to turn from my sin and turn to you. It is that simple. This invitation to live in relationship with Jesus is available to all, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what scandal you've been a part of, no matter what scandal is in your family or who is in your family tree. Jesus is for everyone, He is for sinners. The one born to save us is the one who will save us even now if we would receive him. Let's continue worshiping our Lord.